Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. Tonight's lesson is for somebody very particular. It's for anybody that has ever felt like they're not good enough. Now, this could be at any point in your life. Maybe when you were a child, maybe now. Maybe it's something that you've struggled with and you've overcome, or maybe you're still feeling it at the moment. Well, tonight's lesson's for you and for me. Now, I'm going to talk about a particular person in the Bible, and we're going to get to him really quick, and you're all going to understand when you hear the name exactly where we're going. But for me, I went through this a lot as a kid. I was not a very coordinated child. <laughs> Let me just be honest with you. My father, he was an athlete. He loved baseball. He grew up playing it his whole life, actually got good enough to where he was scouted by some minor league teams before he joined the Navy. And that was his dream that was never fulfilled. So when I came along, I think he wanted that dream to pass along, but I could not play baseball <laughs> to save my life. I was just not good at it. Um, when I would have the pick em teams, you know, remember that in school where everybody stood in the line and you had the two captains come out? You want to talk about some fear and anxiety <laughs> when you're standing there? And you start off with 20 people and you're down to two and you're like, yep, this, here it comes. I'm going to go last. And they're like, I'll take the other guy and then, yeah, I'll take Ryan <laughs> for it. So it was okay. You just kind of learned to do that because when it came time to partner up for academics, I was always first chosen. So that was my uh, <laughs> way to get past that. But there was a lot of anxiety. And what happens is when you're stuck in that situation, you just don't feel like you're good enough. You don't feel like you belong. You feel like this is how everybody sees me, so this is how I am? How can I possibly rise up to the occasion? I'm just not equipped to do that. But when you get older, those team captains change. It's not so much like it is in high school, but now you have a boss that may say, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Not because the effort's not there, but because you just can't do what the expectation level is for them. Or maybe it's family members that are telling you, what's wrong with you? You should be so far past this now. You gotta really push yourself through this. Everybody's done that, and I've probably done that some myself. Sometimes it's religious leaders and the church. Uh, you just stay in your pew. We'll handle all this up here. Do you feel like you're good enough? Do you feel like you've had the opportunity to serve God, or do you feel like you're one of the least, one of the weakest? Now, if everybody in here is truthful, there's probably at some point in your life where you have felt like that. And if you haven't, then you've had a blessed life, and good for you. <laughs> but tonight's lesson is for all of us who have had that. See, throughout the scripture, God has always chosen the least. The least likeliest people to rise up and fight for his glory. There's no greater evidence of this in the Bible than Judges. God, when he was trying to save his people, intentionally looked for people who were out of the ordinary to rise up and save his people. God picked people that some would consider oddities, if you will. Now, there's nothing odd about being a woman, but Deborah, being a leader of an army, was odd. That was not something that was done back in those days. Yet she rose up for God and, and helped him out. Ehud was left-handed. Not an oddity for us, but for soldiers back in the day, that was considered a deformity. You fought with your right hand, you held with your shield, but God used that to his glory and had Ehud overcome King Eglon. 
And even Samson, you're like, okay, come on, Samson. He was all muscles and he's going to be the first pick on your team, right? But Samson was following a Nazarite vow that even some people thought was archaic at the time and had all of his powers zapped away just by simply shaving his hair. Oddities. But God said, these are the people I want to pick to rise up and lead my people into battle. And then there was another one, our hero for the night, Gideon. Now, if you've heard the story of Gideon, well, you know what's coming for him. But see, Gideon was the poorest of his family and the least powerful and influential. In the sake of the world, he really didn't matter. And he knew that about himself. But see, Israel did this thing. When God brought them into the land of the Canaan, Canaanites, they would start looking around and saying, oh, these people are worshiping these gods over here. They're worshiping those gods over there. I kind of want to do that. I want to participate in these circles of festivities and everything else. And then pretty soon their love for God started switching over to the relevant gods at that time, and there was no more relative God than Baal. So we are going to read in Judges, the sixth chapter here. We're going to read about Gideon tonight and something that God does to use the least of these to rise up as the greatest of these and bring God to glory. Now it says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years, in verse 6, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of the Midians were so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountains, clefts, caves, and strongholds. So these Israelites were actually sent into hiding. These were one strong, proud, brave people that are now hiding because of the Midianites that are coming in. They camped on the land because the Midianites and the Amalekites, they would come in, eastern people, and they would camp on the land and they ruined all their crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels, and they invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to help for the Lord. So what did it take for Israelites to realize this life ain't so great for us? They literally had to lose everything they had. A swarm of locusts. I don't know if you've ever seen a swarm of locusts, but if you look around the valley right now, we're being invaded by grasshoppers. Yes. I don't know if you guys have seen yes. that. Yes, they're everywhere. Now imagine that 10 times as much, but it's people just coming at you nonstop. Every time you get something established, you get a foothold, you get a camp set up, you get your food ready, they just swipe through and take everything and leave you with nothing. That is what's happening right now from the Midianites to the Israelites. They're just rising up against them. They were ruthless people, these Midianites. They didn't just say, hey, we'll take your food, goodbye. They killed to get what they wanted. And so that's what's really pushed these people, these Israelites, into the hiding in the caves. And the thing is that they would destroy their livestock too. So yes, they would bring it in. They would take, hey, this donkey's good for me. I'll take that. I'll take that sheep over there. I'll take the cattle and the rest of it. They just put to death. So Israelite is, Israel is constantly rebuilding, constantly rebuilding. And every time they do, the Amalekites and the Midianites sweep in and take everything again. And they are in a very, very bad position. Israel needs God. Verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians. I delivered you from the hands of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. 
So Israel's doing something that we often do. They're crying out to God, saying, why God? Why have you let this happen to us? Didn't you free us? Didn't you bring us here? And now the Midianites are just destroying us. Why are you doing this to us, God? But see, the, the, the thing that the unnamed prophets are showing them is that you guys did this to yourselves. You brought this on because you stepped away from God. You started doing the one thing that God told you not to do and worship these idols. So these raids that keep coming through, destroying everything that you're building, is by your hand. But God's still willing to help you because you cried out to him. That life lesson to us is where we start thinking, I have done way too much. I have gotten to the bottom of the barrel far too deep to cry out for God for help. No. No. These people did the one thing that God asked them not to do. Yet when they cried out for help, he was angry in their choice, but compassionate in the fact that they reached for him. And because of this, he's going to deliver them. In verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah and belonged to, that belonged to Joseph the Abyssalite, and I'm sorry, Joash, and where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress to keep it from the Midianites. So Joash is Gideon's father. Gideon is in the winepress. Now what is significant about this is wheat was not threshed inside of a building. It was outside. They had a very simple way of threshing wheat. What they do is they would put all the wheat in this gigantic basket and they would throw it up in the air. And the wheat that was heavy would land back into the basket and the wind would blow the chaff away, which is the gross stuff, the yucky stuff. That's where we get the term separating the wheat from the chaff. And they would do this using the natural elements of the wind. But Gideon can't do that because if he does, guess who's going to see him? The Midianites coming through. He's got stuff that we want. Let's get it right there. So what Gideon is doing is actually hiding inside this wine press. And I don't know how he's doing this. And he's getting this wheat ready so that he can't be seen. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. <laughs> Do you think at this moment where Gideon is cowering in a wine press so that he doesn't get seen, that he feels like a mighty warrior? I always feel like there's a little bit of sense of humor <laughs> in God sometimes. The Lord comes and says, Gideon, you're the one. You're going to do this. And Gideon's like, not so loud. <laughs> they might be out there. He says in verse 13, uh, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of the Midians. The whole point of this right here is that this is something generational, generational that was handed down. Promises that were given from the time of Moses from one family to another. So Gideon hears all these great stories of what God did and what God has provided. And yes, that is true. But once they turned over to Baal, Gideon can't understand why God is not saving them and rescuing him. And that is what this prophet is here for. Verse 14. So the Lord turned to him and said, go in strength. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not the one sending you? Well, pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least person in my family. And the Lord answered, because I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. So here's his answer. Gideon 
does not feel that he's cared. Nobody cares about him. He's not strong enough. He's not powerful enough. He doesn't matter. He's the last person picked on the team. He's in the poorest family with the lowest name, and he's the least of the entire family on top of it. And God said, that's exactly who I want. Not only is he capable, not only does he possess the ability, but God gives him a promise. It is the same promise that he gives us that he will be with us throughout the battles. However, Gideon continues to see himself not as God sees him, but as everyone else sees him and cannot fathom his own worth in the sight of God. See, we have a tendency to see ourselves the way others do. And why wouldn't we? That's what's around us all the time. Now, when I was a kid, there was plenty of things to show negative images of what we think we should be or look like or act and things like that, but nowhere near what this generation has to go through. You guys got it tough. Where every video, TikTok, Instagram, everything is promoting beauty, perfection, look like this, act like this, get this money, gain this job, have this power, and it's pounded in as entertainment. Now, if you don't have that as a child, how do you feel? There's the standard that's set by all of society over here. You need to be in this group because it's the only one that matters. And yet, true believers that know where their priorities lie are standing over here and I'm not part of that group. What does that do to our kids? What does that do to new believers when they come in? I am not worthy. And God is literally saying, I don't want that group. <laughs> I want this one over here that's standing along. Don't look at how others see you. Look at how I see you. Even though we are called by God, we still base ourselves on societal worth. That's it. I don't make enough money to help out. I'm not a good enough speaker. We know that that happened in the Bible, didn't we? And God said, then I'm going to use you especially. I don't have enough influence. That's the big catchphrase. I don't have enough influence. Not enough people follow me for me to make a difference. So we're afraid. And as I talked about in my last lesson a while ago, fear is a normal, acceptable human emotion. But it is not an excuse. And God's not going to let Gideon use this. You see, Gideon has one advantage. He may not be the strongest. He may not have the most money. He may not have the most power. But he is smart. Very smart. And he's going to put God to the test that we're going to see here. And if you ever wonder if God has patience for us, well, here's Gideon. Test number one. The Lord agrees allowed Gideon to bring him some offerings. Gideon says, I got to go get some stuff and I'm going to bring it back here and, and sacrifice it to you. And the Lord patiently says, okay, I'll wait. So Gideon brings it back. And the angel of God said to him, take that meat and that unleavened bread and place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. And then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand and fire flared up from the rocks, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. And when Gideon realized that, that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. 
Now Gideon was was confronted with something supernatural here for the first time. God's work happening in front of him. He was a little bit unsure. Is this actually an angel from God talking to me? Is this actually the Lord himself giving me this? But now he's seen it. He has seen the work. And now his faith has grown. He has a little bit of confidence behind him. You see, it's easy to stand when we see God working in our lives. It's easy for all of us. The hard times is when we don't see God working. And then we say, God, send us a sign. Let us know you're still there. Let us know you're still here in our prayers. Let us know you're still walking behind us. So that same night, the Lord's going to test Gideon. He said, take another bull from your father's herd, the one that's seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Now, at this time, Baal was the God in charge for the Israelites. A complete made-up lower G God in all of this. But every household would have had some kind of little altar to Baal, and an Asherah pole was an image, a wooden image, usually of Baal, that was made into a pole that sat there beside it. It was a way to offer your burnt offering and then worship this idol made out of this. So this is the act of defiance that God is asking Gideon to do right now. He said, then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height, using the wood from the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So he is asking Gideon, time to risk your life for me. Take this pole that is made to look like Baal and chop it to pieces and use that to make the burnt, uh, burnt offering to me, the sacrifice to me. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But here's where the humanity comes in. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than daytime. Gideon was smart. <laughs> I want to do what you say, Lord, but let's wait till they're sleeping, and then we'll do it. That's why God wanted Gideon. Gideon could get the job done. He could. And in the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed of the newly built altar. And they asked each other, who did this? And when they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. And the people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. You know, a lot of times we feel like, what kind of influence can we have on the people around us? How can we really change people to be followers of God? Do I have to hit them over the head with the Bible? Do I have to drag them to church? Do I have to scream scripture through their door until they finally open it up to me? Gideon's just saying right here, do the right thing. Here's his father, the one who actually had the altar and the pole, now standing up for his son and in a way God. Because you know what Joash says to all the people? Let Baal deal with it then. <laughs> Why are you acting on behalf of him? If Baal's got a problem with this, come on, Baal. You go after Gideon. Just Gideon's example alone in his defiance of these idols turned his father. Yes, he's protecting his son, but he is seeing something supernatural working right here. See, Baal was the god of weather and the god of harvest. So what they would do is sacrifice to him in hopes that the crops would come, the rain would come, their things would grow. 
the Midianites would come and take them away. <laughs> but still, they hoped for the best. And what Gideon did was basically say, I'm going to spit in the face of your entire economy right here, and I'm going to destroy your God, and you will not have all of this stuff to come, as they thought it would. And he set himself up to be killed. Gideon is getting a backbone through all this. So once Joash has defiance against the people and he tells them, you let Baal come, they decide to name Gideon something else. That's Drubal, which is Jerubbaal on there, which is one who contends with Baal. Now, if you remember when um, uh, Israel wrestled with God, wrestled with the angel, and he was given the name Israel, which means one who contends with God or one who goes against God, well, he's getting the same name, except he is one who goes against Baal. And that is a big title to have at the time. That's basically marking him saying, this guy hates our God. Keep your eye out for him. And it was a name given in defiance. You think of all the other awesome nicknames out there like Iron Mike Tyson and William the Refrigerator Perry and you know all those kind of things. This one is basically, this is Gideon, the man who fights with God, our God, Baal. If I was Gideon, that would be a name of pride <laughs> that I would take. I'm standing up for my God, which I know who's right. And all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the other eastern people joined forces, and they crossed over the Jordan, and they camped in the valley of Jezreel. And then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abyssalites to follow him. And he sent messages throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher and Zebulun and Neptali. So they too went up to meet him. So now Gideon's getting this army together. We got this, guys. We got the Lord behind us. Everybody rally together. Let's get our finest soldiers together. We're going to fight this battle, and this call goes out. But now the human side of Gideon creeps back in again. He's pumped up. He's ready to go. But what if they actually beat us when we go out there? So test number two comes God's way. Gideon said, God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised... Look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. Now, I tried to find a wool fleece that looks like they would have had back then, and my success was terrible on it, but I did bring this. So this is more like what we would be looking for. So, yes, this is a bath mat. <laughs> but for tonight, it's going to be a wool fleece. A fleece was used a lot in Israel. It was used a lot in, in all the different tribes and areas in there. But the reason why it was because it was universal. They could use it for so many things. It could be used as a mat to lay on. It could be put on wood to keep splinters out. But probably what Gideon and his family would do was use it as a covering for what they did, which as farmers was, was threshing wheat. So once the wheat was on, this would be used as a cover, cut on, cut on top of it, laid over it. And then that would keep anything like pests from coming in or rain or things like that. It was a protectant on there. So Gideon had these laying around. This was something that he was going to use. So what he's asking God is he's like, I'm going to put this on the ground tonight. And when the dew comes, I want to see that the only the dew is on the fleece and the rest of the ground is dry. And then I'll know that you'll save from Israel. Now, if you're going to ask God for a miracle, is this what you would go with on there? It, uh, yeah, <laughs> it would also show you a little bit of Gideon's humbleness. 
because he didn't say, God, throw down lightning from heaven, light the ground on fire, let the earth tremble, and then I will know you are with us. He said, can you just make this wet? <laughs> he threw it on the ground. And that was going to be his test of God's faith. So Gideon rose up early the next day, and he squeezed out the fleece and wrung out the dew, and it made a bowl full of water. Okay, test passed. God's ready. He's with you. Uh, maybe not quite so fast. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with this fleece. But this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. And that night God did so. So only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. The patience of God through this. Gideon, I said I was with you. I've already done all this stuff to prove to you who I am. But no, God recognizes who we are. He knows we're human. He knows we have fears, trepidations, things that are going to arise keeping us from following his word, and God is very patient with us. So God decides he's going to put Gideon to the test now. I've shown you everything you wanted from me. Now I need you to stand up and do something for me. So the Armies are getting together. They're ready to fight. And early in the morning, Zerubbabel, also known as Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. And the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many soldiers. Now, what does that do for Gideon's confidence? <laughs> uh, God, there's so many of them. They're like hordes of locusts, and I can't even count how many camels they have. And we have this little bit of men right here, and you're telling me there's too many. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Ah, there's God's wisdom. Yeah, we got all together, we got organized, we had a great leader in Gideon, we went down there and we showed those Midianites. And God's saying, uh-uh-uh. I want them to realize I'm the one who's doing this. That you have to have me to do this. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear and may not turn back or may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left and 10,000 men remain. Can you imagine the scene? Just hordes of soldiers. Anybody scared? I am. And they're gone. And Gideon is watching these hordes of soldiers just leave in every direction. And now he's down to 10,000 men, a third of what he started with. So 20, or sorry, 22,000 men. And they left while 10, oh yes, 10,000 remain. But then the Lord said to Gideon, this 10,000 men, there's still too many. Take them down to the water and I will then, I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. And there the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as dogs lap from those who kneel down to drink. Now get that image in your mind. They're thirsty, they fall straight on their face, they're drinking like a dog right out of the water. Where others kneel down and grab up the water and drink this. Now many of you have probably heard this, but this is very significant because in the armies at that time, you had to be on your guard at all time. The men who drank like dogs out of the water could not see what was happening. Their faces in the water, they're drinking. The men who kneel and bring up the water to their mouths were looking around them to see if there was attack about to happen. They were the smarter of the group. So what does God tell Gideon? Get rid of all the smart ones. 
just keep the ones that are lapping water like dogs on there. The Lord said to Gideon, with these 300 men that have lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. And the 9,000 plus <laughs> that drank from their hands leave. And now Gideon is looking around at a tiny congregation of people. Where does Gideon's faith have to be right now? Where does his bravery have to be right now? I'm the weakest of my family to I'm going to take on the baddest army in the land with 300 men. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but he kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. Gideon is going to have to use his faith. He's going to have to use his brain. Now the camp of Midian lay below them in the valley, and during the night the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. And if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. And afterwards you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. They're doing some spy espionage stuff. <laughs> they're going down amongst the people. How much courage does it take to do that? They could say, that's Gideon. Then the whole thing's done. But Gideon goes down into the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern people had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand of the seashore. And Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. So he's sneaking in to a couple guys talking. And these two people are talking about a dream. And he said, I had a dream. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. Do you guys see the irony in this? What was Gideon doing when the angel found him? The same thing. The same thing. He was making wheat. And what happens in the dream? This giant ball of wheat <laughs> comes in and destroys the camp. The Israelites, I'm um, sorry, God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into our hands. So Gideon is ready to go. And when Gideon heard their dreams and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into our hands. And dividing the 300 men into their three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Uh, excuse me, Gideon, when do we get the swords? <laughs> when do we get some shields and some weapons? Nah, here's a trumpet and a pitcher. We're going to beat these guys. Now take that torch and hide it under the pitcher. All right? Keep the trumpet in your other hand and just wait for me. Boy, I can tell you, if I was part of that army, I'd be like, man, I could have left when the 20,000 other did. But now I'm holding this trumpet. I'm too far in. Let's just do this. So Gideon's ready. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And Gideon and, and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning in the middle of, or sorry, at the beginning of the middle watch. So this is a vulnerable time. The watch is changing guards. They don't really have anybody standing with weapons ready. They're changing out for the day. And they blew their trumpets and broke their jars that were in their hand. And the three companies blew the trumpets and smashed their jars 
grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets. And they were to blow, and they shouted, a, wor a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man held his position around the camp, the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. And when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. Uh, excuse me, Gideon, when do we get our sword? No, they've already got them. <laughs> They're going to do this for us. Now, can you imagine? It's the middle of the night. Everybody is in dead sleep. And all of a sudden, you hear shouting and screaming and trumpet blasts and these pots breaking. And you see all of these torches appear around the camp. Your camp now looks like it's on fire. It is mass chaos. And you just grab your sword and start stabbing people. <laughs> That's basically what happened. And with these 300 men and God, Gideon took out the two baddest armies in the land. 300 men and God. He took out the baddest armies in the land. The armies fled to Beth Shedan towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel, Nalo, near Tabith. Israel's from, um, Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Everybody's in on this. All Israel's in on this. We're going to get these guys. And Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them, as far as Beth Bara. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Bara. And they also captured the two Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb, and they kill Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb and the, at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. You come a long way, kid, <laughs> from where you were at. Hiding in a wine cellar, saying, I am not good enough to even be part of this family. I'm the weakest in the group. Standing there holding the heads of the two most feared leaders of the Midianite army. Was any of that done through Gideon? All his faith in God. All his faith in God. What brought him there? I'm not good enough. I know that's what everybody tells you. So that's who I want in my army. We will never see ourselves as God sees us. But we can see our faith and love in God and what he does for us. There's going to be times in our life where we are just down and out, where we feel like the world is crushing us, where we feel like we have nothing to give back. That's when God wants us the most. You see, if there, if there was a big pick them like there was in junior high for me and all the people were out there and God had to pick his team he would say you with the muscles and uh, the six foot ten frame can you get out of the way because I want the guy out behind you that's dealing with chronic pain but doesn't forget to say his prayer reads his bible and talks to his neighbor about God every day that's why I want you step forward you're on my team supermodel with the seven million instagram likes out of the way I want the single mom behind you that works so hard to take care of her kids but never forgets to pray with them every night and is teaching them about me. You're on my team. Billionaire over there that talks about all the cars you buy and how great you are and all the power you have. Can you move out of the way? Because I want that impoverished guy back there that is working two shifts at a fast food restaurant to take care of his family, but never ever forgets to come to church and worship me. You're on my team right here. And if you doubt me, Look at the scripture. Who did God pick for his team? 
I want a teenage virgin to carry my son from a tiny little town that nobody cares about. I want a tent maker. I want fishermen. I want a tax collector. These are the people that are going to fight my battle. You know who's going to stand up against that horde? You. You know who's going to take down the baddest armies of evil? You, Gideon. And no matter how Gideon felt about himself, God felt everything for Gideon. And finally, Gideon felt that as well. We test God continually, and God answers us. God does not need our might. He needs our heart. That's the bottom line of this whole lesson. He doesn't need you to be great. Can you do things in positions of power to help God? Absolutely. Maybe your influence is great. Maybe you do have millions of followers. Maybe you have all of that. Speak God. Show it in your life. That's great. But if you don't, God has use for you. And maybe it's to fight against the evil armies that are out there. Gideon found a lesson that I hope all of us find in our life. That we don't need nothing, nothing more than God. That's it. I don't need to be the best in my family. I don't need to be the best in my tribe. I don't need to be the strongest. I don't need to have the most money. I just need to be on the same side as God. That's it. And when Gideon found that, he took down armies. Why can't we? Why can't we stand up against the things in our lives that are trying to tear us down? We can. Because God is faithful and promises he will be there with us every step of the way. I'm going to say a prayer for us tonight as we close out. We're going to face some armies this week. Or maybe this month, or maybe this year, but we're going to face them. And they're going to stand in front of us and look insurmountable. They might come in and ravage everything we have, but let's never forget who's standing behind us.